0: question. Was Christopher Columbus a hero or a genocidal maniac? When I was in kindergarten, like many boys at the time, I wanted to be part of the Boy Scouts. That honorable tradition dating back all the way to 1910. I know. I, I actually thought it would be a lot further than that too, like the Civil War at least but it was actually brought over from Great Britain by an American businessman named William Boyce. William was lost in the woods one day when a young British scout helped him out. Boyce became so impressed by the resourcefulness of the boy that he decided to incorporate the Boy Scouts of America. But now we're less than a minute into the program, and I'm already (laughs) off course. So let's right the ship, as it were, and you are very welcome for the Sailing Puns. Anyway, I wanted to be in the Boy Scouts when I was younger, but to get there, I had to start off in the Tiger Scouts. The Tiger Scouts did none of the things I had actually thought of as Boy Scout stuff. First, we didn't have a uniform. Instead, we had an iron-on patch that my mom was good enough to iron on to a white undershirt I had. Then, when we would get together, we didn't tie knots or help the elderly cross the street. I apologize to any Boy Scouts if this is incorrect. I grew up watching a lot of old Disney films, and this is the impression I got. Anyway, we'd get together at different family homes and do an activity once a month, usually craft-based. Not the mac and cheese variety of craft, the, the glue and yarn variety. In mid-October of my Tiger Scout year, we got together and made milk carton boats at which point we were told the story and learned a phrase that is familiar to many in the United States. The story was of Christopher Columbus. Columbus, we learned, sailed west in search of India, thinking the world was round. Many people thought he was wrong, saying the world was flat, but Columbus proved them wrong because on October 12, 1492, Columbus and his three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, saw land, proving that the world was in fact round but instead of landing in India, Columbus had discovered a new world. Because he thought he was in India, Columbus named the inhabitants Indians, a name that has stuck until this day. The phrase we learned in Tiger Scouts was, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. This is the story that most people learn when they're young, either in school or, as I did in Tiger Scouts, when hearing about Christopher Columbus. As they get older, though, a more sinister story appears, a story which goes something like this. Bloodthirsty Christopher Columbus, hell-bent on finding gold and willing to do anything to get it, set out with the blessing of Prince Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. He laid out his two goals for the monarchs. First, he would find China and India by sailing west, being that he believed the world was small enough to sail that way. The fool he was. And second, Christianize, by any means necessary, the inhabitants of India and China. When he got to the Americas, he immediately began enslaving and torturing the inhabitants. The Arawaks, the group he first came into contact with, he wiped out and went on to wreak havoc wherever he went. In all, upwards of 95% of the native population in the Americas would be wiped out when it was all said and done. So looking back at the original question... Was Columbus a heroic navigator who discovered the new world, or a genocidal maniac whose ambition and inhuman nature led him to kick off one of the worst loss of human life in world history? Before we can begin to answer that question, we need to know more information. Let's start off learning a little bit more about Columbus's life. Chapter 1, Columbus's Voyages. Columbus was born, we believe, in Genoa, Italy, in the year 1451. Many historians like to draw a connection with Columbus's birth to the fall of Constantinople, Columbus's birth coming two years before the fall of that great city, and along with it, the last vestiges of the Roman Empire. Columbus grew up poor and, as a young man, moved around a lot. He worked on ships first for the Genoese then moving to the foremost naval power of its day, not Spain, but actually Portugal, and then finally ending up in the Spanish court of Ferdinand and Isabella. If you want a more in-depth look at Columbus's past, while there are a myriad of biographies on Columbus out there, including Columbus's own journals, which are actually quite a fascinating read, I would suggest Columbus's The Four Voyages by Lawrence Bergerin, the book which was my primary source for the background of this podcast. Before I get too far into Columbus's voyages, I want to take a step back and look at the Spanish kingdom of Ferdinand and Isabella at the time. Isabella of Castile was married to Ferdinand of Aragon in 1469, merging the two Iberian states, the Iberian Peninsula being what is today Spain and Portugal. Aragon was essentially central Spain, and Castile making up a good part of the eastern portion of the peninsula. There is a link to the Iberian Peninsula at the time of Columbus on the website, aquestionofhistory.weebly.com. The merging of the two states unified Spain, which had actually never occurred before. Prior to Spanish rule, the peninsula had more or less been controlled by the Moors. Before that, it had been controlled by the Visigoths, and even before that, the Romans. The thought of joining the entire peninsula under one house was very exciting, and the two rulers went about trying to make it happen. They did this in perhaps the most violent way possible. First, they expelled the Moors, North African or Iberian Muslims who had controlled the peninsula for many years, as I stated earlier, and the Jews. The expulsion of the Moors and the Jews is what we call the Inquisition. The Inquisition is one of the darkest chapters in the history of Europe where thousands of people were killed, and tens of thousands were locked away or exiled. The Reconquista or Reconquest of Spain from the Moors in the expulsion of the Jews was completed in early 1492. The reason I bring up the King and Queen is because of their patronage to Columbus. The reason I bring up the Reconquista is because Spanish troops have a lot of practice pacifying large groups of non Christians right on the eve of Columbus's faithful voyage. You may be able to see where this is going. So let's get back to Columbus. After bouncing back and forth between Spain and Genoa and Portugal, Columbus was again seen in Spain in 1492. There he presented his idea to the king and queen. He told them he would sail west across the Atlantic, and by doing so, he would reach Japan, China, and India. Everyone at the time understood the world was round. That was a given. You couldn't look at the sea and notice a ship slipping under the horizon and not understand what you were seeing. Either the ship was falling off the earth, which was really difficult to explain, especially when the ships would eventually come back, or, the more obvious explanation, the world was round. No, whether the Earth was round was not a question. How big the Earth was, that was the question. The debate basically broke down into two camps. One that thought the Earth was the size it actually is, minus, of course, the large landmass we call the Americas in the middle. This group figured out the curvature of the Earth and extrapolated from there. The other group was led by a man named Martin Bemain, the Maine had produced a globe that showed Europe, Africa, and Asia, the Atlantic Ocean, and back to Europe. With this thought, the riches of the East were actually very close and could produce quite a bit of wealth for the young sovereigns in Spain. The idea of a transoceanic empire excited the king and queen, who had heard of its great riches. The information about the East came 200 years prior from a man named Marco Polo, who had traveled by land to the empires of China and India, and came back with talk of the great and powerful empires he found there. Ferdinand and Isabella were very excited by this possibility. They gave Columbus three ships, and he was off. After three months at sea, Columbus's men were getting angry and mutinous. Finally, land was seen, and on October 12th, Columbus made landfall. He and his crew did indeed meet the Arawaks, or at least a group of people who spoke the language. These people were friendly to Columbus and his crew. Columbus immediately thought of how easy it would be to enslave the people. This often gives people reading Columbus's journals pause as his first thought is of slavery. If we dig deeper, though, Columbus comes from a time where slavery is fairly common, and not the race-based system we think of today. There was lots of money in the slave trade, and Columbus was, no matter how one views him, always worried about money. He didn't have much. The system of slavery also was more one of indentured servitude, not one for life. Columbus's views on slavery weren't necessarily right, but at least understandable. The Arawaks were eager to help and befriend Columbus and his crew, This is not because they were a docile people either, as Columbus thought in his journals, but rather their confrontations with a neighboring group. The Caribs, a very aggressive tribe for whom the Caribbean gets its name, were nearby, and Columbus and his ships could possibly give the local peoples a sort of protection. As an aside, it is often said that the Caribs were cannibals. The basis for this is sketchy at best, Also, Columbus talks of the Caribs as the army of the Grand Khan. The Grand Khan supposedly are the descendants of Genghis Khan. Marco Polo had met Kublai Khan when he was there 200 years earlier. This assumption, however, is false on a number of levels. First, and most obvious, Columbus was nowhere near China. Second, and this Columbus really couldn't have known at the time, The descendants of Genghis Khan were no longer in power in China, which was at this point in history ruled by the Ming dynasty. Columbus sailed around the Caribbean for a few months and eventually made it back with the slaves he mentioned, along with other plants and trinkets from the area. He did not find the massive amount of gold he had promised the king and queen. That said, he did find something, and the monarchs were ecstatic they immediately granted Columbus a request for a second expedition, naming him the viceroy, or viceroyal, ruler of the territory for the king and queen. Columbus would sail in total three more times to the Caribbean, getting as far as the coast of Mexico, each voyage with its own trials. I don't want to spend too much time on Columbus's second through fourth voyages, mainly because we are already 12 minutes into this podcast, And if I went through all of them in detail, it would take quite a bit of time. We're looking at an hour or two. But I do want to say a few things. First, Columbus enslaved whole populations and brutalized them. Second, Columbus was made governor of the Indies by the King and Queen. And because of his gross mismanagement, he was eventually jailed by the people he was governing. So, great sailor, not a very good administrator. And third... On Columbus's fourth and final voyage, he made it to the mainland, even though he didn't realize it, and discovered there was another ocean across what we call today the Isthmus of Panama. Columbus never actually saw the ocean, though. He just heard about it, and still assuming he was in Asia, figured it must be the Indian Ocean. Columbus would eventually die in 1506. Columbus's voyages have been considered not only a great story that has been told and retold countless times, but one of the most pivotal points in human history, finally linking East with West. But as many of you already know, it wasn't the first time those two had met. There have been many different connections between East and West. Chapter 2. Other Groups to Sail to the Americas While I was in school learning the poem in 1492, Columbus Sailed the Ocean Blue, at home I was hearing something different. This poem went, In 1492, Christopher Columbus was number two. Leif sailed first. Uh, This is because of my proud Scandinavian heritage. As many people know, Columbus was not the first European to set foot on land in the Americas. That distinction, as as far as we know, goes to Leif Erikson. Erikson was the Icelandic Viking son of Erik the Red, a man of such great renown that he was kicked out of not just one but two places, uh, first Norway and then Iceland, and finally headed west settling in what is today Greenland. And if you know anything about geography, you know Greenland is essentially a large glacier, which makes naming it Greenland one of the best marketing ploys in history or really calls into question whether or not Eric was colorblind. The story goes that Leif visited Norway around 1000 AD and was converted to Christianity, which is why my Norwegian forefathers like to take credit for him. The fact that he was also a Viking, one of the most feared barbarian tribes in history, not the least bit for feeling no qualms at all about murdering unarmed people and stealing from priests in their monasteries, seems to be something we... Norwegian ancestry like to conveniently forget. Where was I? Oh, yeah, uh, Leif, he's back in Norway. After being converted to Christianity, which I guess makes it all, all good that he's still a Viking, uh, Leif sailed west and, depending on the account you read, veered off course heading for Greenland and ended up in a place he called Vinland. Today, sources say that Vinland was most probably modern-day Newfoundland in eastern Canada. While the Vikings are the first that we know of, they're not the only group to make it to the New World prior to Columbus. One of the things I hated growing up and now tolerate because it's considered a tradition is the food I eat at Christmas time. As I mentioned before, I am of Norwegian descent. Prior to the invention of refrigeration, the Norwegians needed a way to preserve their food. They came up with a unique method, especially concerning cod fish. Norwegians used to dry the cod, then soak it in lye before cooking it. Now, if you don't know, lye is one of the key ingredients in making soap, and it will burn your skin chemically if it comes into contact with it. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the movie Fight Club. It'll make complete sense, Um, assuming you are all over the age of 17 and can do that. Anyway, The result of the cod-lie union is what we call lutefisk. Lutefisk is a tradition in my family, one which I have to suffer through every year. And yes, we we do actually eat it, some of us cold. What does this have to do with anything you may be wondering? Well, it turns out that cod has been desired by humans for centuries. And because we like cod so much, um, it actually has nearly been harvested to extinction by this point, we need to find different ways to get it. Uh, cod was especially desired in Europe, which, over the centuries, has led to more and more exploration. Around the year 1000 AD, a little bit after the time Leif was finding himself in Vinland, the Basques discovered a cod-rich region off what is now no- the eastern seaboard of North America, what we call the Grand Banks. For about 500 years, the Basques fished this area and kept it secret, largely because it was making them very, very rich by having a monopoly. It wasn't until the French made their way to the New World in the 1600s and took control of Canada that the Basque monopoly on Cod was ended. So if Columbus wasn't the first European in the Americas, why is he so important? Chapter 3, Columbus's Importance. While the Vikings had been in the New World 500 years prior and the Basque fishermen had been doing their thing off the coast of the Grand Bakes for nearly as long, they did not make a large impact on the area. Nothing really changed, except for the bumper cod harvest throughout the time. People still ate and drank the same thing they had for the past two to 300 years. The importance of Columbus is twofold. First, Europeans stayed in the Americas after he came had significantly changed the way people in Europe viewed the world. Never again would a group show up and leave without thinking too much about what they had actually found. Second, and just as important as the Europeans staying, is what we now call the Columbian Exchange. The Columbian Exchange is the exchange of multiple things, both cultural and biological, from east to west and west to east. Starting in the West and moving East is, for the most part, food. Chilies, or what we call peppers, the name was given because chilies made things flavorful and had a bit of spiciness to them, and the only thing that the Europeans had which was semi similar was pepper. There were also potatoes. Potatoes were an amazing crop which were able to grow just about anywhere and have an extremely high caloric content if you do not believe me that potatoes can grow anywhere, ask Matt Damon. The Irish found this out and converted a large part of their diet to potatoes, which was one of the causes which led to the Great Famine that drove the Irish out of Ireland in the mid-19th century. Even with these crops, there was one above all that dominated the East-to-West trade, maize. Prior to Columbus, the term corn in Europe had been a catch-all for various crops. Wheat, barley, oats, all of these fell under the term corn. That changed when maize was brought back from the New World, co-opting the catch-all term corn. In his book 1491, Charles Mann discusses the importance of maize. Maize, it turns out, is a true marvel of the world, the reason for which... Is that there is no such thing as wild maize. Maize's origins start with teosinte. Trying to describe teosinte is difficult unless you can see it. I'll put a picture up on the website, but I'll also try to do my best to describe it. A cob of teosinte, if it can be called that, is a skinny stock structure with seeds, or kernels on the outside. The cob is much smaller, about an inch long, with far fewer seeds, around 12, than modern maize or corn. The plant's structure is very different as well, looking closer to a weed, sorry, teosinte, but that's the best way I can describe you, uh, than a stalk of maize, with thinner leaves along with smaller ears. The change from teosinte to maize is important because it did not happen naturally. Genetic manipulation, uh, in this case selective breeding, was used to create a better version of grain in order to produce something that had high caloric value and would be sustainable in fields year in and year out. When maize traveled across the Atlantic, it changed things dramatically, especially in Africa. There is evidence to suggest that during the Columbian Exchange, there was a sudden population growth in the continent. It has been argued that because of the population spike, Western Africans were able to be sold to Europeans as slaves without harming the overall population of West Africa, allowing for the triangle of trade. Many different foods and methods for agriculture traveled from west to east in the Columbian Exchange. So what did the West get in return? Well, it turns out very little, and most of it bad. One of the problems that occurred when Europeans started coming to the Americas after Columbus was they brought disease, both from people and animals. Those illnesses, especially smallpox, led to the worst die-off in the history of the world. During the Black Death in Europe in the Middle Ages, communities died at a rate anywhere from 25 to 30%, a huge population loss, which had major consequences throughout Europe. The die-off of the Americas, however, was much, much worse. Conservative estimates show 80% dead. More mainstream estimates put the number at 95%, or even higher. A question raised by this is, did the West get anything good out of the deal? It really depends on who you were and whether the consequences were worth it. For instance, horses arrived with the Europeans on the American continent for the first time in tens of thousands of years. Horses had existed on the continent in prehistoric times, but were most likely killed off in the early days of human contact. Horses were definitely an improvement as far as travel was concerned. Now communities were able to move from place to place much quicker. But the disease they carried also moved much more quickly. Pigs came with the Europeans as well. And while bacon is great, I'm not sure it's worth the disease and the completeness of which the pig takes over every ecosystem it comes into contact with. So in summary, many things changed on both sides, but very few good things came from Europe. So where does that leave us? How Should We Remember Columbus? Chapter 4 How Should Columbus Be Remembered? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. If nothing else, the phrase will be something Columbus is remembered for. Or will it? In 2015, Minneapolis, Minnesota voted to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, citing the major problems with Columbus's past and the legacy those problems left. There are very good reasons for this. Columbus was not a great person. He was almost universally hated by the end of his life. So much so that we do not see North and South Columbia on our maps today. Instead, we see America, named for the explorer and cartographer Amerigo Vespucci, who had the foresight to name territories on maps after himself. Along with being hated by most of the Europeans he knew, Columbus's first thought when entering the Caribbean was not one of discovery necessarily, but one of conquest, with some of the very first thoughts being how easily he could enslave the local population. With that said, I'm not sure Genocidal Maniac is a proper fit either. People attribute his legacy as being one of genocidal because Europeans continued to come after his voyages, and with them came disease and conquest. But is that Columbus's fault? Sooner or later, the continent across the ocean would have been realized by Europeans or Asians or Africans, and with them, the disease that spread. The idea that Columbus would try to or even want to decimate the population is unlikely. A final thought on Columbus's impact is the result of the Spanish conquest. Other than Brazil, which speaks Portuguese, every major country in the Americas south of the United States speaks Spanish. The U.S. itself has more Spanish speakers than Spain. Along with language, the religion of Spain had an enormous influence. Catholicism is the number one religion of Central and South America, the bulk of which were once Spanish colonies. They may not have been had Columbus not sailed the ocean blue. Columbus's impact is immense, but how should he be remembered? Was he a genocidal maniac, a hero, or was he something else? something for you to decide. for listening to today's episode if you would like to contact the show we have a gmail account at questionofhistory@gmail.com, at or you can go to our website at we also have a twitter account we are at QofHist thanks for listening